This is the Daily Signal podcast for Tuesday, May 24th. I'm Virginia Allen. And I'm Doug Blair. During a recent trip to Japan, President Biden seemingly departed from previous American policy towards Taiwan and announced America would militarily defend the tiny island if China were to invade. But is this the right policy decision for the U.S.? Director at the Heritage Foundation's Asian Studies Center, Walter Lohman, joins the show today to discuss what the implications of this massive shift in policy would be and what China's goals are in Taiwan. But before we get to Doug's conversation with Walter Lohman, let's hit our top news stories of the day. Georgians are headed to the polls today for a midterm primary election. But the big news coming into this election is the record number of early votes. More than 875,000 ballots were cast in Georgia during the three weeks of early voting. That's three times as many as were cast early in Georgia's 2018 primary election. Keep in mind that last year, Georgia passed election reform legislation that was intended to make it easier for people to vote and harder to cheat. The legislation was heavily criticized by those on the left, resulting in the MLB moving its all-star game from Atlanta. In March of last year, Biden called Georgia's election reform bill Jim Crow in the 21st century. Georgia's Republican Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger says the high turnout in early votes is a testament to the effectiveness of the election integrity reform the state passed last year. Raffensperger said he promised to strike a strong balance between access and security in our elections. And the early poll numbers show that voters have confidence in Georgia's elections. But some on the left say the high early vote count does not mean voters did not face challenges. Richard Hassan is a law professor at the University of California, Irvine, and he told the New York Times that just because turnout is up, doesn't mean that voters face no hurdles. It could well mean that voters overcame those hurdles, and that means that time and money were put into efforts to assure that voters could overcome those hurdles. Turnout at the polls is expected to remain high today as Georgians vote for their governor, secretary of state, and several other key races. In an about-face from his comments on Sunday, President Biden said Monday he doesn't think monkeypox will be as serious as COVID-19, per CNN. Originally, the president said that everybody should be concerned about monkeypox, but his attitude shifted the next day. Here's Biden via the Hill. We've had this uh, monkeypox in the larger numbers in the past, number one. Number two, we have vaccines to care for, to take care of it. Number three... Uh, there is, uh, um, thus far, there doesn't seem to be a need for any kind of extra, extra effort beyond what's going on. And so I, I just don't think it rises to the level of the kind of concern that existed with COVID-19 or, and uh, the smallpox vaccine works for it. So, uh, but I think people should be careful. CDC officials are currently monitoring a few cases of monkeypox in the U.S., Think back to September 2021. Remember the National School Boards Association letter to the Biden administration asking for an investigation into whether parents' actions at school board meetings could be classified as domestic terrorism? Well, a draft version of that letter has surfaced in which the association asked the Biden administration to deploy Army National Guard and military police 
Well, a draft version of that letter has surfaced in which the association asked the Biden administration to deploy Army National Guard and military police to certain school districts. Evidence suggests that the National School Board Association worked with the White House in writing the letter. The draft version of the letter read, We ask that the Army National Guard and its military police be deployed to certain school districts and related events where students and school personnel have been subjected to acts and threats of violence. Of course, the final version of the letter removed this language. Insurance provider State Farm is stepping into the culture wars. According to corporate whistleblower organization Consumers Research, the company is encouraging its employees in Florida to donate a package of three kids' books about transgenderism and gender identity to local public elementary schools and libraries. The three books are A Kid's Book About Being Transgender, A Kid's Book About Being Non-Binary, and a kid's book about being inclusive. They're being distributed via State Farm in partnership with LGBT advocacy group The Gender Cool Project. According to Consumers Research, State Farm corporate responsibility analyst Jose Soto sent an email attempting to recruit six State Farm insurance agents in Florida to get these books in March, then donate them to their community by the end of April. The Washington Examiner reported that State Farm has denied program participants or being asked to share the materials with schools. Now stay tuned for my conversation with Walter Lohman as we discuss China and Taiwan. Americans use firearms to defend themselves between 500,000 and 2 million times every year. But God forbid that my mother is ever faced with a scenario where she has to stop a threat to her life. But if she is, I hope politicians protected by professional armed security didn't strip her of the right to use the firearms she can handle most competently. To watch the rest of Heritage Expert Amy Swear's testimony on assault weapons before the House Judiciary Committee, head to the Heritage Foundation YouTube channel. There you'll find talks, events, and documentaries backed with the reputation of the nation's most broadly supported public policy research institute. Start watching now at heritage.org YouTube. And don't forget to subscribe and share. My guest today is Walter Lohman, director of the Asian Studies Center here at the Heritage Foundation. Walter, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Thank you. We just heard from President Biden, who announced while he was on a trip to Japan that the U.S. would intervene militarily to protect Taiwan if it was to come to that. Uh, Is this in line with previous American policy towards Taiwan, as the White House later tried to claim? Uh, No, it's not. I mean, I think what the White House was trying to do was to contain the damage from what the president said. So, uh, no, our policy for the last 40 years has been one of ambiguity. That is what Donald Trump said the best, actually, was the Chinese know what I will do without spelling it out Mm -hmm. uh, to hold out there the possibility that the U.S. would come to Taiwan's defense, but not to say it explicitly. So, no, it wasn't in keeping with current policy. It wasn't keeping with previous policy, it was the White House trying to correct the record. Now, you use the word damage. So clearly, this doesn't seem to be a good announcement from the Biden administration. Uh, No, because we want to keep the Chinese guessing about what the United States would do. Um, And we want to keep Taiwan guessing to some extent also, because as much as we love Taiwan, and personally, I would like to see us defend Taiwan if it ever, ever came to that. I think there would be a case for that, and we'd have to make that case. But we don't want a foreign power, whether it's Taiwan or Japan or 
or uh, the UK or our best friends in the world. We don't want them to be the ones to be able to pull the trigger on the use of American force. We decide. So, mm -hmm. if, so if we put if we put it in their hands to create the conditions under which we might go to war, we're essentially ceding our authority to to go to war. It might be helpful then, as we reference the fact that this is a departure from general American policy towards Taiwan, what has been traditionally America's view towards Taiwan? Well, since 1979, when we recognized the People's Republic of China as the sole government of China and re represented in, in the United Nations, et cetera, um, our policy has been an unofficial one with Taiwan. Mm -hmm. So we recognize that the Chinese think that Taiwan is a part of China, but we don't recognize that Taiwan is a part of China. So it's a very complicated kind of uh, formula we came up with, but it was one that allowed us to, to reconcile with China, move forward and do some cooperative things, and at the same time continue to protect Taiwan. Mm -hmm. So we never want to be in a position of making that too clear uh, for fear of... Uh, you know, roiling um, the atmosphere in the region. We started out with, obviously, if I know my history, we would try to acknowledge the Republic of China, which was Taiwan, as the sole authority for right. the Chinese government. And then that sort of evolved into recognizing the People's Republic. Has it evolved since then right. where we... Uh, essentially, no. I mean, so, so Jimmy Carter made the decision in 1979 to drop Taiwan to no longer recognize Taiwan or the Republic of China, no longer recognize that as the sole representative of China and instead recognize uh, the People's Republic of China, Communist China. Mm -hmm. um, he made that decision to do that. That was the big break. Since then, our policy has really been one of uh, really guided by something called the Taiwan Relations Act, which is that we um, will maintain unofficial relationship with Taiwan, closest that Taiwan has with uh, any important country in the world, really, and we'll sell it the arms that it needs to defend itself. And along with that comes a tentative commitment, or not really a commitment, but the, we want to give the impression we would come to Taiwan's aid if we need it. But mm -hmm. we're never overly explicit about it, again, because to be overly explicit about it gives the Taiwanese, who as great as they are, uh, and, and however much we want to protect their freedom, we don't want them to decide the circumstances under which we go, we go to war. Given that we know the American position, or at least what it's traditionally been towards Taiwan, what is China's position towards Taiwan? Well, from China's perspective, Taiwan is a part of China. Mm. And not just part of China, but part of the People's Republic of China, uh, that it doesn't have its own independent uh, basis. So... Our position is that it's practically speaking independent, and it is. For all intents and purposes, Taiwan is independent, um, but China wants to change that and make it sort of legally, operationally a part of China in a real way. Mm -hmm. uh, and our effort is to prevent that from ever happening. Mm -hmm. Now, I guess one of the things that we keep hearing is a comparison from the administration that this is a very similar situation to what we're seeing in Ukraine, where a larger power, in this case Russia, would be invading the smaller power Ukraine, flop that with um, China and Taiwan. Is that accurate? I don't think it's. I don't think it's accurate. Um, I think just the task of it is very, very different. So you've got a body of water between Taiwan and China, 
that we used to call it in the old days before China developed such a sophisticated military, the million man swim, mm -hmm. because the Chinese would have no way of getting across the, the straits. Now they have more capability to get across the straits, but still an extraordinarily complicated uh, legal maneuver. You know, it would be the equivalent of Hannibal crossing the Alps mm -hmm. for the Chinese to land an invasion force uh, the size that it would need to take Taiwan across the Taiwan Strait. So uh, I think it's a very different sort of situation than what the Ukrainians are facing in Russia. The other difference is that the Taiwanese are very well-equipped, well-trained uh, military, um, and they have a constant supplier already from the United States. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think uh, Donald Trump finished his term having given them, I think, $16 billion in arms. Now, and, and important to say, not given them, sold them. They mm -hmm. buy the weapons that we give them. They buy very sophisticated weapons, F-16 fighter jets, for example, uh, Abrams tanks. They buy real stuff and they know how to operate it. Mm -hmm. So actually, that's another point of comparison then. If, let's say, that the Chinese do plan to invade Taiwan – is the strategy that the U.S. adopts similar to what we're doing in Ukraine, where we provide them with arms and sanctions? No? No, no. I, I think um, our policy would be to come to Taiwan's defense. Mm -hmm. But it's different to have that policy and to know that that's what's going to happen than to say it. Mm -hmm. you know, and, that, and that was the problem that, that Biden made. Again, the, 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 the president that got this the clearest – and he wasn't a man known for his clarity, in fact. <laughs> but Donald Trump really nailed this uh, in the summer of 2020 when he was asked, what would you do if this happened, if, if China made a move on Taiwan? And he said, China knows what I would do. Mm -hmm. And he was pressed to, to, can you be more specific? And he said, I don't want to be more specific. China knows what I would do. It's the perfect summary and the, and the clearest language of what our, our policy um, on Taiwan and the prospects of us going to war there is. Given that it seems like it would be very difficult for a Chinese invasion to successfully conquer Taiwan, it seems like you, you mentioned that even with the technology that they have now, there are still a lot of logistical issues. Is there a possibility that a separate way of conquering the island, maybe through subterfuge, economically? Absolutely. Absolutely. And in fact, that's the Chinese preferred route. Mm -hmm. And they've been working on that for... 70 years, you know, ever since the Republic of China found refuge on that island, they have been working to get it back. And so in modern times, let's say within the last, especially within the last 10, 15 years, they have used all kinds of technology to do these things, to, to infiltrate social networks, to infiltrate the media, um, to constantly be streaming messages about Taiwan's eventual collapse, about how the U.S. can't be trusted, um, all these sorts of things to affect the political environment in Taiwan. So there, Taiwan itself is a divided society. Um, half of Taiwan wants to be independent. Um, the other half wants some kind of reconciliation with, with the mainland. So the Chinese effort is to benefit the reconcilable part of that and to get them elected to office and eventually bring Taiwan in that way. And they can do that by using 
like I said, this subterfuge that you referenced in the social media uh, and all sorts of things, but also through intimidation. That's what these flights that they conduct near Taiwan are all about. Hundreds of flights, uh, you know, hundreds of planes at a time, military uh, planes at a time trying to intimidate Taiwan to create this atmosphere of inevitability that, that, that Taiwan will become a part of China. You said it's about 50-50, where some of the people want to reconcile with China and some of them want to be independent. Have we seen those numbers shift in the years since? Uh, not really. What, what, 50, by 50-50, I mean sort of as reflected in the political environment. Mm -hmm. So you have two main camps. You know, They call them blue and green. Blue is, is more uh, conciliatory to, to China and green is more in favor of, of independence. But in opinion polls, the vast majority of Taiwanese just want to continue like things are, independent, practically speaking, um, and just continuing to run their lives, not part of China, not being conquered by China, but also not provoking China. You know, the president of Taiwan always says that when she's asked about Taiwan independence, she always – and she's an independence advocate, or that's, that's what she made her career on before she became president – the point she always makes is Taiwan already is independent. Mm -hmm. And it is from all for all practical purposes, it is independent. So what would they gain from demanding that China recognize them as independent or that the U.S. recognize them or, or, any, or anyone else? Um, in fact, it would, it would provoke China. And so the vast majority of Taiwanese just want to continue forever in this sort of status quo situation. Mm -hmm. Have a bit of a long-term question here. There's a, there's a couple of different levels to it. So what would the consequences of a Chinese takeover of Taiwan first off be for Taiwan? Oh, it would be it would be terrible for Taiwan. I mean, look at what's unfolding in Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. You would have the same thing in Taiwan. Um, Taiwan is a very vibrant democracy um, and a liberal democracy at that. I mean, lots of liberal freedoms, all the same liberal freedoms anyone in Europe or the United States has. Uh, that would all end. Mm. I mean, it's freer than Hong Kong was three years ago, 10 years ago. And so it would be a complete shutdown of that mm. uh, for, for Taiwan. No more competitive elections, no more freedom of speech, no more freedom of the press, no more freedom of religion. Um, it would be it would be a catastrophe for Taiwan. And then to sort of expand on that, what would the consequences be for the U.S.? For the U.S., it's a big strategic issue beyond the moral cause. There's a moral cause here, but... but uh, but it's a big strategic problem because the Chinese would control the whole island chain that goes down the east coast of uh, of China and would then be able to project power out from there uh, deep into the Pacific uh, all the way to the U.S. Pacific coast. As it is now, China's kind of blocked in by this, by this um, island chain. Mm -hmm. they, they call it the first island chain. There's also, you know, this issue of Taiwan's place in international supply chains. They make a majority of the world's semiconductors. And we're in a bind right now in semiconductor uh, supplies. But even when this supply shortage resolves itself in the next 18 months or so, still going to need a lot of chips. And, you know, we don't need uh, the Chinese coming in and destroying uh, capacity. So it's, it's, it's strategic in that sense, too. I guess that does kind of lead me to another question where is this still about an ancestral claim to Taiwan and a, a sort of post-war, civil war claim to we need to have all of China? Or is it now more about the economics? I think it's more the former. I mean, just in that the communists anyway have always maintained that 
Taiwan is a part of China and that it's a part of China going back for centuries, millennia, and that they're in their right to take it back. Um, I mean, you know, there's a lot of sort of concocted history around these things. You can debate that. You can you can dispute it. But that's the official line of the Chinese mm -hmm. Communist Party, and they will maintain that. I think the the economic side of it is a new, a new facet. Um, but you know, think about what would be involved of an invasion of Taiwan. It's not like seizing an oil field, seizing of a chip fabrication facility. Okay, uh, you ever seen the people working in there with the, with the suits on? You know, the the completely uh, hazmat type thing. I mean. You're not going to be able to take over a semiconductor facility and then run it under the point of a gun, mm -hmm. right? So it's really not in China's interest either to see that capacity destroyed uh, and, they not, and they can't effectively seize it. You know, you can't force people to do this kind of high technology, uh, highly skilled labor uh, under the point of a gun. Mm -hmm. Cats out of the bag. This is the the sort of as we wrap up here. Since we know that Biden has said this, and the White House is going to try and and change it, but I think the world has sort of seen what the position is. Where do we go from here? I think we have to um, just to understand the context that the president made those comments. Uh, it's not ideal, but our best bet here is to go with the clarification and not with what President Biden said himself. Um, you know, again, I, I, I want to sort of make clear that personally, I am for the United States defending Taiwan if it ever came to that. And I make that point a lot. Mm -hmm. And I have made it for 20 years that the U.S. should come to the defense of Taiwan. I've been all for selling them arms over the years. Again, selling them arms that they buy and they spend over 2% of their GDP on, on defense. So they're doing their part to, to arm themselves. But me saying all that, especially saying that the U.S. should defend Taiwan, is different than the president of the United States saying that. Mm -hmm. uh, because he's the one that commands the troops. He's the commander in chief. And when he says it, it's a, it, is a, it is a commitment. Um, so... I think we need to try to, you know, facilitate the White House's effort to walk back those comments, mm -hmm. you know, and it's sort of it's a famous, well, what the president meant to say type of situation. He actually said the same thing back in October, almost in exactly the same, in the same words. I think it'd be giving them too much credit to think that it was a strategy of some mm -hmm. sort. I think he just misspoke and he misspoke twice the exact same way. Uh, so I think... We have to continue doing everything we can for Taiwan to keep them safe and prosperous for the reasons that we just talked about, uh, that they, um, you know, that we have strategic interest in that, but also for a moral cause uh, on behalf of, uh, of the Taiwanese. Um, we have to continue to, to stay close to that, even as we criticize the president for not choosing his words as carefully as he, as he should have to avoid conflict because, you know, I want to keep Taiwan free and prosperous and secure. I'd rather not go to war. Mm. And so the president's comments actually make war, war more likely, not make it less likely. Mm. That was Walter Lohman, director of the Asian Studies Center here at the Heritage Foundation. Walter, thank you so much for your sure, time. Glad to be here. Thank you. 
And that'll do it for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening to the Daily Signal podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the Daily Signal podcast on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. And please take a moment to leave us a review and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and encourage others to subscribe. Thanks again for listening, and we're back with you all tomorrow. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. The executive producers are Rob Bluey and Kate Trinko. Producers are Virginia Allen and Doug Blair. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, please visit DailySignal.com.